Well, good morning. Glad you're here today for this message as we look at the questions that Jesus asked. And today is a really important one. Before we do that, I just want to really just uh, affirm our middle school ministry. Uh, Jake is doing a fantastic job with our young people, and many of you have been a part of. Uh, One of the cool things that happens is that middle school is a really vital ministry here, and the high school students, many of them help with the middle school, and college helps with high school and middle school, and that's the way we live out empowering leaders and multiplying disciples because one generation is telling of the goodness of God to the next generation. And uh, that's part of the strategy here, and if you need to get involved and be part of it, we just welcome you to take a step in and get involved in it, because it's really changing lives, and we're praying for the next generation. We really think the next generation of young people who are going to be at Calvary Bible Church at CU and in local high schools are going to change the world by being faithful to Christ. You're going to do that, and uh, we're looking forward to that. Every week that we're here, I talk uh, usually with somebody who is here for the first time or is here because they felt like they needed to come to church. Over the last several weeks, uh, people new to church, new to following Jesus, uh, we get to interact with. And some of their comments to us have been, I just thought I should come to church. I was feeling lonely and isolated, and I just thought this would be a good place for me to come. Great. Love that you're here. Um, a couple of people over the last month that I've talked to, have you ever, uh, you know, where do you go to church? I've never been in church before. And all of us should have in our mind that as we meet together in a place like this, some of you have been walking with Jesus for many, many years. And others are just exploring what does it mean to go to church? What does it mean? Is there a Bible that is God's word and don't know the way around the Bible? I, I want to tell you, if you don't know your way around the Bible, that's okay. There's one in front of you that's got a table of contents. You can look in it. Uh, you'll find your way. The one thing I would encourage you if you're new and you've been here a week or two or a month or six months, stay here. The ultimate immersion over time of what does the Bible say, who is Jesus, what does he ask us to do, will begin to trickle into your life and heart, and you'll begin to answer those questions. So I'm just saying to you, I'm glad you're here, and I know that not everybody in the room knows the things we're talking about or believes the things we're talking about, and you're welcome to be here. We want you to be here. Clear? Okay, I want to say that because today we're looking at, at one of the most misunderstood and misused passages in all the Bible. It's a familiar one. It's in Matthew chapter 7, the opening six verses. And it is misused because it's used to maintain that Christians should never be dogmatic about anything. And certainly should never evaluate the position or practice of another person. Even strongly held convictions about what is right or what is wrong. Many people think that this passage is a shield to be held up against any kind of critique. Don't judge me. I'm my own. I can do what I want. 
Who are you to say anything against me? This is the passage that's often used as a protection against being confronted or evaluated about everything. Here's how it begins. Judge not that you may not be judged. Therefore, everyone can do what's right in their own eyes. How has that worked out over time in history? The Bible actually tells us a little bit about that. So a little introduction. To judge means to come to a conclusion in the process of thinking things through and evaluating and to be in a position to make a decision. So I judge, I evaluate, and then I come to a conclusion and I make up my mind. Idiomatically, the word judge means to come to the end of one's thinking, to choose one's mind, or the mind sees its goal and it's set. So you think of someone making a judgment about another human being and determining this or that about them. It is important to understand that the section we are in, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, was Jesus' very first sermon as he began to walk on the earth and teach. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. And the whole theme and flow of the Sermon on the Mount is to distinguish between true religion and spiritual life and false religion and spiritual life between man-centered religion and Christ, king-centered spirituality. God's standard versus man's standard. This is all through it. In fact, one of the key verses in the Sermon on the Mount is Matthew chapter 5 and verse 20, which actually invites you to make a judgment. And this is what it says. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now that seems like I have to make a decision. I've got the the religious system of the Pharisees and the scribes, or I have the religious system of Christ. If yours doesn't exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you're never going to get to heaven. Now that is a very profound statement, but that's because... All through the Sermon on the Mount and all the Gospels, Jesus goes on to say, well, you've heard it said, but I say to you. Here's here's what the world says and the world standard, and here's what I would say to you. And then in another place, in the Sermon on the Mount, he actually says, do not be as the hypocrites who give money to be praised by others. Don't be like the hypocrites who pray in a certain way just to get attention to themselves or fast so that others will notice their piety. Now that requires a judgment that you look at something and you don't do it. That's what Jesus is inviting here. He accused the Pharisees and the scribes of straining at the little gnat but swallowing the whole camel. And all of this is to determine man's religion versus God's religion. Look in your Bible if you're in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 15, where after the section that we're going to look at in a moment, don't judge, he says, beware of false prophets who come in sheep's clothing but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Well, how do you beware yourself 
against false teachers unless you make a judgment about what's happening there. So this is a misunderstood passage. Of the Pharisees, Jesus said, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. In Matthew chapter 15 of the Pharisees, Jesus said, for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you, this people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. So all this is set in the context that there is a group of people who want to create their own man-made religion and turn that into a higher standard than the Word of God. And Jesus condemns this. These were the self-righteous people. They generated their own standard of religious behavior. It was a fastidious compliance to... This might not work. Their own standards of, tra of tradition, they were critical and legalistic over people, anybody who conformed to them or those who didn't, and they never showed mercy or compassion, and all of it was based on appearance. So the Pharisees were those who propped themselves up, and in order to prop themselves up, they tore other people down. In order to justify themselves before others, they condemned others if they didn't measure up exactly the way they thought. There's one famous parable in the Bible in which Jesus tells this great comparison. It's the comparison of Jesus saying there was a Pharisee and a tax collector. Anybody remember this? Pharisee and a tax collector, and they both went up to pray. And the Pharisee went up to pray. Jesus is telling this story in front of Pharisees, I'm sure. And the Pharisee said in the parable, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, and I'm not like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. What's he doing? He's propping himself up in order to bring someone else down. And the tax collector simply says, without even looking to heaven, beating his breast, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Okay, that's the context that's going on that men always want to create their own standards in their own religious view. And then Jesus breaks in in verse 1 of chapter 7, and this is what he says. Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. So it's going to be very interesting that Jesus has made some judgments in the way he's talking about the Pharisees, but now he's talking to the multitude. And we're going to see the word brother in here, so it's really people who are part of the kingdom. And he says, judge not, that you will not be judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, what's the next phrase? You will be judged. Now let's just get the big idea here. There is a judgment, and there is a judge, but you're not it. That's the point Jesus is making. There is a judge. It's, there is going to be a judgment coming, an ultimate judge. And only God can condemn because only God can perceive the motive. So what we're talking about here is the wrong kind of judgment. 
There is going to be a judgment that thankfully will be done by God who knows everything, including every circumstance, every decision, and every motive. But no human knows that. And it's with that in mind that he says, do not judge. To judge, again, means to separate or choose, and the motives no one can know. So beyond the temptation to establish our own measuring for this, I think what Jesus is doing here is saying that the judgment described here is condemned because of its sense of superiority over another person, a better-than-thou kind of attitude, a self Righteousness, looking at someone else, says, I can't believe you did that. And self-righteousness is blind. When we assume that we know enough to make a judgmental decision over someone else who's doing something that we might not approve of, we assume or project that we know all the details, we know all the circumstances, we know all the motives in order to make a merciless judgment about another person It is with this measure that we will be judged by the one who actually does know all things, including our motives. I think that's what's the point here. Don't judge, but you're going to be judged, and by the standard you give to others, that's what's going to be. If you act like you know everything, you should know, remember, that you're going to be judged by someone who actually does know everything about you. So... What we see here is the Lord saying there actually is a higher standard and you don't possess it, so be careful about making judgments about other people. J.C. Ryle is a late 1800 uh, Puritan from England, and he said, what our Lord means to condemn is a fault-finding spirit, a readiness to blame others for trifling offenses or matters of indifference. It's the habit of passing rash and hasty judgments, a disposition to magnify the errors and infirmities of our neighbors and make the worst of them. Well, be careful not to do that, not to make judgments that are rash and hasty as if we knew everything that there was to know. I think that's what Jesus is saying here. Does that make sense? Hmm? Let's keep going. The next verse, verse 3 and 4, says, why do you see the speck in your brother's eye? That's the question for today. Why do you see the speck in your brother's eye and you don't notice the log that's in your own? Jesus is asking a question. That's a pretty convicting one. Why do you see the problems with me but not yourself? Why do you see the problems with someone else but not those around you? Now, we should note something about this. The speck is real. It's a thing. It's not a piece of dust. It's actually the word for twig or maybe a splinter. So why do you see the splinter in your brother's eye, but you got a log, a plank in your own? And how is it that you're paying so much attention to that? Why don't we see the log in our own eyes? All right, let's get fun for a minute. Who do you know that's critical? Have you ever had somebody in your life that their, their mission in life was to find things that are wrong with you and point them out? Mm-hmm. Well, I have. I think people like to point out things that aren't right with moi, the church. I mean, after COVID, everybody had something to say about church. And they wanted to point out the things that weren't quite right about it. 
Um, have you ever been critical about somebody? Ever rolled your eyes at the prayer requests that were shared around the circle? Ever been critical of the church? I find that it's not uncommon to see people critical of the church who would never lift a finger to help the church accomplish its mission or give a dime for, for what's happening in the church. I mean, it's easy to make critical statements. Why is it that we see the problems in other people, but we don't really see them in ourselves? Well, there's blind spots. You know what blind spots are? Blind spots are attitudes or beliefs or behaviors that we're not really conscious of or that we willingly ignore in ourselves, but that affect the way we think about other people. We all have blind spots. Well, I haven't seen mine, but we all have blind spots, right? We don't know what, what, we're, not, what we're missing as we interact with other people. But why is it that we, we're pretty good at being able to identify when other people mess up or there's something about them? Well, I think what Jesus is getting to is that we tend to see other people's faults because they're actually pretty familiar to us. We, we actually fall prey to those same things in our own life as well. They're known to us because we do them. Or maybe why do we see the faults in other people is because internally we have an internal sense of insecurity about ourselves and when we point out the weaknesses of other people, we have a way of sort of elevating our own, back there it is again, our superiority over others. And some people are just simply pugnacious. They like to fight. They like to pick a bone with you. They like to nitpick about things. And um, some people have the gift of criticism. And, and that's their jam. That, they like to, they say, okay, I actually have to help people in this area of their life. And recently, someone said, well, I'm just evaluative. <laughs> I said, yes, yes, I know. <laughs> but, well, I'm not going to say any more about that. <laughs> but there are people who just like to be critical. It's their gift. When you say, let me take the speck out of your eye, it's like, let me fix you. Let me, let me fix you the way I like you. I'm going to help you live, work, whatever. Um, but we often don't see what's going on in our own life. There's a classic Old Testament example of a blind spot. There was a king in Israel by the name of David. And King David was walking out on his porch in 2 Samuel chapter 11. It'll immediately come to mind for some of you. And he was looking out over his porch and he looked down and in the next yard over there was a beautiful woman taking a bath and he got so turned on by her that he called for her to be brought to his palace. He raped her and then he sent her home. She got pregnant and uh, then he arranged in a scheme to put to death her husband and then he took her as his wife. That's David and Bathsheba. He went a whole year without doing anything about that huge, huge transgression, series of transgressions. And then God brought a prophet to him, Nathan, 
And Nathan came to him one day, and Nathan said to him, I want to tell you a story. There were two men in a certain city. One was rich and the other was poor. And the rich man had many flocks and herds, uh, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and he grew up with him and his children. The lamb used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. The little lamb of the poor man was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man's house, and the rich man was unwilling to take one of his own flock and herd to prepare it for the guest who had come to him, but instead he stole the poor man's lamb and prepared it by killing it, sacrificing, and then feeding it to the man who had come to him as a guest. And David flew into a rage, crossed his arms, and said, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. He will restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing, and he had no pity on the poor man and his little lamb. And Nathan said, everybody together, you are the man. It's you. This is a story, and it's about you. And suddenly a blind spot just goes. Every once in a while, we have to be able to say, is there something in me I'm not seeing? Don't judge other people. Don't be quick to judge other people. You're going to be judged by the same measure that you give to other people. Why are you so interested in the speck that's in your brother's eye? Uh, can you really say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a big old plank in your own? This is very convicting, isn't it? And that text in the Old Testament is given to us to show a blind spot. Now, verse 5. Jesus takes the gloves off. You're being hypocritical. You're a hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye. Then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Okay. A couple things I notice about this is there's something to do first, but it doesn't necessarily undo the work that you might want to do to help someone with the, the failing in their life, the speck. First, you've got to deal with the log. Specks and log both can, uh, create blindness, and both should be removed, but what happens first? What happens first is Matthew 5, 4, blessed are those who mourn. I, I have to think about my own life and say, I'm, I'm dealing with my sin with God, uh, search my heart, O oh God, and see if there be any wicked way in me. I want to confess my sins. I want to be right with you. I don't want to just waltz into somebody else's life and tell them how they're messing up. I want to be sure I'm right with you. So take the log out of your own eye first. And that begins by confessing my sins and being quick to look in my own heart first. Jordan Peterson wrote a book, The Twelve Rules of Life. Any of you read that? What's rule number six? Rule number six from Jordan Peterson, echoing these words of Jesus, um, not from a Christian perspective, but here's the rule. Set your house in perfect order before you criticize the world. Like, what do I have to do in my own life before I start looking at others and pointing out their foibles and failures? But the other thing I would say here is that it actually says, then, and then you will be clear to see how to help your brother or your sister. Like, that's still a work. There still is a judgment that can happen between two people who love Jesus. 
In John chapter 7, verse 24, Jesus says further about judgment. Don't judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. In other words, there is a way to, to interact with people with a right judgment, and you can't do that by appearances. You say, oh, I don't like the way they dress. I don't like what they did there. You don't know everything. You're not the one at the beginning who, who knows all things. So do it with right judgment. Well, what's the right judgment? James tells us a little bit. James chapter 2, verse 12 and 13 says, So speak and so act with each other as those who are judged under the law of liberty. You, you've been freed by God from your sin, so live that way. Judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. By the measure you judge, you'll be judged. And mercy triumphs over judgment. Now, what's inviting? The way we deal with each other here is not in self-righteous superiority, but in a humble kind of sense that we look at each other. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy is better. John Stott has written, This command to judge not is not a requirement to be blind, to not look, but rather it's a plea to be generous, to be merciful, as James says. Generous and merciful judgment takes time and energy. It requires an eye of complexity, a willingness to give the benefit of the doubt, and it has a self-distrusting posture, like I, I'm not sure about myself. And it takes prayer, and it takes time. So it's not about I can never look at someone else, but I have to look with a generous mercy to someone else if I'm going to try to help. You with me? Okay. So does the New Testament clarify or give any other instructions? I'm leading you. It does. The Apostle Paul said many things about judging, and this is one of the verses that I'd like to say, okay, if you feel like it's your gift from God to help someone else with a problem they have in their life... What do we now know? Let's do a little self-examination. And if you need some help with self-awareness, ask me. No, ask somebody. <laughs> ask somebody in your life. Somebody in your life should say, I'm, this is what I'm thinking, and what do you think about that? Okay, well, okay, I want to be aware of myself before I talk to someone else. Galatians chapter 6, verse 1 and 2 actually tells us how to Talk with somebody else who may have a speck, may have a spiritual issue that's not, uh, that's impeding their spiritual life. If anyone is caught in a transgression, so someone's living in sin, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch over yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. There's two things I'd circle in my Bible here. One, keep watch over yourself. That's Paul's way of saying what Jesus said, take the log out first. Like, what's going on in me that makes me so inclined to want to help this person enough to confront them about what's happening in their life? Well, I want to, I want to take the log out of my eye. I want to keep watch over myself. And what they're susceptible to or they're struggling with I need to say, well, that's common to me. I, I struggle with that too. I, I'm susceptible to that. And the other thing is, you who are spiritual should, next word, 
restore. See, I think what Jesus is judging of the Pharisees and everybody who wants to walk in the steps of the Pharisees is that they were condemning without mercy those who didn't measure up to their human standards. And what Paul says is that anytime you talk to somebody about maybe a sin in their life, something you see that should be corrected, what's the purpose? The purpose is in no sense to put yourself one up on them. It's, it's not to make you superior and them inferior or you justified and them condemned. It is to restore them and bring them in and lift them up and help them. That's the whole purpose. And Paul puts that in our minds that this is really the law of Christ. This is the way we do it. We don't swing a gavel, boom. We get near to somebody and help them in their life. Why is it that you tend to see everybody else's faults but maybe not your own? That's the question. Do you have any questions about that? All right, let's get the last verse in which Jesus gives a surprising picture, and I think it's intended to shock us. And he says, don't give dogs what is holy, and don't throw your pearls before swines, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. What? What's Jesus saying here? Well, while you're interacting with people, don't take what is holy and give it to the dogs, and don't take what is precious and give it to pigs, and in these two ways, he's taking probably the most two despised creatures in the culture who were, um, you know, in most cases, dogs were not domesticated. They were scavengers. And pigs, of course, were dirty, filthy, and unclean. And he says, you don't take what is precious of God and throw it before those creatures. Otherwise, they will trample the truth that you've set before them, and they may turn and attack you. Now, how does that fit together with judging? Well, it's like there's certain places where judgment should be considered and carefully applied, and other places where it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense to throw the precious things of God in front of pigs and dogs. I think he's using this in order to illustrate those who repudiate the holy things of God and would do violence to the truth of God and to the people of God if you gave it to them, so better to move on and not cast them before them and to shake the dust off your feet as you leave them. I think the way it's put in the New Testament in another place is you're not here to judge the world. Um, there are times in which you have to make a decision and say, I won't go any further with this person. I, I'm, as, as much as I can, I want to live, with peace, live at peace with this person, but then there comes a line that I, I just have to step back. In Titus chapter 3 and verse 10 and 11, a person who stirs up division after the first and second warning have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful and has, you know, he's self-condemned. Somebody's causing problems in the church, what do you do? Boop. Okay, warn, and then have nothing more to do with them. In another place, Paul said, I want you to be careful about those who cause divisions and create obstacles, contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught. Avoid them. 
There's certain people to avoid in your life and just step away. Here's the way Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians, okay? Um, he talks about making judgments in the church and outside the church. This is really helpful. 1 Corinthians, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9 and 10. He said, when I wrote to you my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, I wasn't meaning the sexually immoral people of this world or the greedy or the swindlers or the idolaters. I love this line. Otherwise, you'd have to leave the world. When I wrote to you, don't associate with immoral people or this kind of people, it, it wasn't like don't associate with non-believers who are that. If you had to just stay completely away from immoral people and corrupt people, you, you'd have to go right to heaven. And God doesn't want you to go right to heaven. He wants you to be here to be salt and light and grace and truth and mercy and peace and gospel witness to everybody who doesn't know him in the world that way. So that's just a little word for us here in Boulder. We're, we're living in the world in which we're living, and God doesn't say just be isolated, go live in the fortress, go be a tower. Interface with the world. Be salt and light. Be grace and truth to them. What he does say in the next verse is, I'm, I'm writing you not to associate, don't cast your pearls before, anyone who bears the name of brother, Christian, professing Christian, if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater or a reveler or a drunkard or a swindler, don't even eat with such a person. Wait, wait, what? And someone who says, I'm a Christian, but I live like hell, you should say, whoa, that is not a reflection of a life in Christ. What have I to do with judging outsiders? That's the first two verses. I, I don't judge the world. Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge, whom you are to interface with? God judges those outside, but what's the work of the church? Purge those evil persons from among you. This was a very, okay, contextually, don't, don't let me lose you here. Contextually, this was a very gross immoral, immoral situation going on in the church described in the earlier chapters, and Paul said that should not be what goes on in the church that a very well-known person was having immoral relationships with his father's wife. Okay, what? Are you not going to do anything about that? Paul says, no, you have to do something about that. Somebody who lives a totally immoral life says, I'm a Christian, I like being a part of Calvary. And they, uh, No, that is, that is inappropriate. What are we going to do? We're going to do Galatians 6. One and two. Anybody caught in a sin? You who are spiritual, restore such a one. If it's impossible, after the first, second, third warning, okay, you, you can't be here. That's the point. So when you hear Jesus say, judge not that you'll be judged, you know, the judgment that you're making is a judgment as God lays it out in his word. But we don't make trivial judgments, inconsequential judgments. James chapter 2, verses 12 and 13 are really the... The big idea here, like let's be merciful as we can and let's, let's try to walk in mercy 
of being people who see each other, love each other, aren't self-righteous, aren't condemning, but really try to restore one another in the spirit of gentleness. This is Jesus' question. Why, why do you see your brother's problems and not your own? We want to say, Lord, will you just look at our hearts today, what's in us that we need to deal with, and then help us encourage each other to walk with Jesus. Not in pride and condemnation, but in mercy and love. And that's what makes church great. You know, church is great when it says there is a standard, it's not ours, it's God's, and we want to follow it, and we do the best that we can, and we're not legalistically judging each other about this. We're just saying, come follow, Je- follow me as I follow Jesus, and let's help each other get there. And that's what I pray God will give us grace to do today. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the word from Jesus, and I pray that you will give us a sweet sense of love and affection for each other and the ability to look each other without criticism that is silly. You'll give us a spirit of encouragement and mercy and kindness and grace and building up. We want to be people, Lord, who see you and say we want to follow you. And we just say if there's a, a speck or a log in our eye, would you just make us see it in a way that will help us live for you? And then would you just help us encourage each other and love each other with mercy and know where to weigh in and say, could I... Could I help you follow Jesus? Uh, Lord, I, I pray for the mercy of God and the grace of God over our congregation and over every place that will intersect in our city. Lord, would you just give us a heart to be able to see who we are in you in this city? And may the truth of God, the grace of God, the forgiveness of God, and the mercy of God be poured out through us to each other. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.